This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 8th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, David Grimm talks about a few new underwater finds, seaweed-eating sharks, and tracking ancient whales via their barnacles. And staff writer Adrian Cho talks with us about the future of quantum computing. If these powerful machines are just around the corner, what will they do for science? Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about a pair of recent online stories. Welcome, Dave. Hey, Sarah. So this week we have two stories from Elizabeth Panisi on unexpected underwater finds. One, a vegetarian or at least pescatarian shark, and another on using barnacles to trace whales. Let's talk... Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk tar- about the shark. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk salad sharks, which is what I called them in my mind That when I first read the story. Um, there's a video of this, and it's definitely a shark eating green things. What's the shark, and what are those vegetables? So this is the uh, bonnethead shark, and you get a closer picture of this guy in the video, and he is eating seagrass. How do you know it's a boy? Let me just stop you right there. You know, that's a good question. It is eating seagrass. <laughs> I did not sex the shark. But, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we think of sharks, obviously, as carnivores and pretty sort of scary carnivores at that. But this uh, this team, uh, or team of researchers in 2007, they found something uh, very unusual in the guts of these uh, young shark of this species, uh, seagrass. And they wonder, well, is that just kind of an anomaly or can these guys actually subsist on seagrass? So what happened was a brave a graduate student mm-hmm. uh, put several sharks in an outdoor several of these uh, bonnethead sharks in an outdoor saltwater tank and gave them a diet of 90% eelgrass and 10% squid three times a day for three weeks and lo and behold the sharks gained weight and they actually seemed to be digesting the seagrass, meaning they could use it as food. This bonnethead shark, it lo- kind of looks like a hammerhead, and it's closely related to that to those kinds of sharks. Do the other ones, other sharks, eat uh, eelgrass? Are they eating their greens under the water? No, not as far as we know. And the other thing is, you know, usually when an animal is a vegetarian, it usually has, or at least has omnivorous or some vegetarian tendencies, it tends to have longer intestines, which gives it sort of more time to digest some of that harder to digest uh, food. But 
The intestines of the uh, bonnethead shark are actually really similar to those of the hammerhead sharks, which indicates it's not the length of the intestines which may be helping them digest this grass, but rather what is actually inside the intestines. I feel like you're alluding, yeah, you're alluding to microbes, aren't you? Well, you know, we love to talk about the microbiomes here. (laughs) We always try to find a way to talk about the microbiome. And, you know, so that's what scientists think is going on here, that these bonnethead sharks have potentially uh, microbes in their guts that are helping them digest this food, potentially as a way to supplement or replace uh, maybe what might otherwise be their standard diet. All right, Dave. So let's move from sharks to whales. It turns out that barnacles that live on whales might be doing a little bit of record keeping as the whale moves about the world. What can we learn? What can we learn from these barnacles about the whale's behaviors? Right. These barnacles, these are sedentary armored invertebrates, just a little bit easier to call them barnacles, but they're attached to whales, all sorts of whales, and they are living, breathing organisms as well. So as a whale travels, these barnacles are eating and doing other things. And so the idea is if you can dissect these barnacles because water temperature changes as these whales migrate thousands of kilometers, the chemistry of the ocean changes as these whales migrate. So potentially these barnacles could be sort of a record if you take a close look at them about where a whale has been. Researchers have known for a while that barnacles do, you know, kind of read out this information. What's new in this study? So what they did here that's different is they expanded this to uh, humpbacks, but they also expanded it to ancient whales as well. We're talking fossils. So how old are the whales that might be able to, that they could look at with this technique? Well, they're looking at whales that might be millions of years old. And what they found with the humpbacks, they actually found a humpback that had washed up on the beach and they knew where this individual had traveled. And so they were able to look at its barnacles. The barnacles told a story about the migration. They were able to match up that migration with the whale's actual migration and they found that it matched up. The team has since started to look at uh, fossil barnacles and being able to at least preliminarily show that these barnacles seem to indicate that whales even millions of years ago may have followed very similar migration routes that whales do today. When you talk about looking at fossils, you're looking at fossilized barnacles? Are they attached to a fossil of a whale? I mean, how do you know that this barnacle, you know, was riding along on a whale? Yeah, these are these are a particular type of barnacles that tend to attach to whales. So, so I think the idea is that when you have this particular type of barnacle, you can assume that it was attached to a whale at some point. Okay, so if we compare, you know, current whale migrations to past whale migrations, what what's that going to tell us? Is that going to tell us about the evolution of whales, changes in the planet? Well, basically what it can tell us is we know the climate has changed a lot in the past. And so if we can match that up with how that's impacted whale migrations, it might actually help us understand how whales in our current changing climate might change their behavior, might change their migration patterns, and that may aid whale conservation. Okay. All right, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about getting artificial intelligence to evolve by itself. Also a story about a tiny little robot that stretches organs from the inside, and that may be a potential treatment for some very rare diseases, especially in infants. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the U.S. National Academies are arguing that NASA should create a $350 million Earth Science Program. Also a story about a proposed controversial addition to the 2020 U.S. Census that would ask about citizenship. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. 
You can see links to the stories discussed in this segment at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Next up, we have Adrian Cho with the future of quantum computing. Quantum computing and, more importantly, quantum supremacy seems to be getting very close to reality. A big question, though, is what will we do with these powerful machines when they finally arrive? The U.S. Department of Energy is investing $40 million to help answer this question. Staff writer Adrian Cho wrote about it this week in the magazine. Welcome, Adrian. Uh, Hi, Sarah. How are you? Good. Okay, so I said $40 million, but often those numbers change. Is that right? Is that how much DOE is investing? No, $40 million is the amount that DOE wants to invest in this coming year, in in 2018. They may ramp that amount up over time. It depends on how things go. Right. Well, I have a feeling we're going to be talking about quantum computing a lot in the next year. So let's just do a few basic things before we get any deeper. How is a qubit different than a traditional bit? A bit is really just a bit of memory that can be either set to a zero or a one because digital computers do all their work with binary numbers, right? And that's how it encodes information. A qubit takes advantage of quantum mechanics. And according to the quantum mechanics, a very small object can be in two seemingly mutually exclusive states at once. So for example, if you have an ion, an ion can spin one way, it can spin the opposite way, or thanks to the weirdness of quantum theory, it literally can spin both directions at the same time. So if you can replace the bits of a normal computer with qubits, you have a number of distinct advantages. The first one is because each bit can be set to zero or one at the same time, you can encode a lot more information at once. So instead of just encoding one long binary number in a collection of 12 bits, you could encode a vast number of of numbers in 12 qubits. But that's not the real power of a quantum computer. That's sort of the starting point. Right. Okay. And before you go further, I wanted to talk about this Mm -hmm. term I, I used in the intro, which is quantum supremacy. Can you describe what exactly that is? I know it's a threshold that all these companies are competing to reach with their quantum computers, but what does it mean? The idea is that quantum computers, once we finally have them, will be able to do calculations that digital computers cannot. The hard part with a quantum computer is that its real power comes not just from encoding multiple pieces of information at once, but actually in how it solves the problems, right? And and so the way a quantum computer works is that different uh, solutions to a problem are essentially different quantum waves oscillating through these qubits. And if you set it up right, all the wrong answers cancel one another and the right answer pops out. That's very, very crudely how it works. This is a, a phenomenon called quantum interference. What are some of the last technical hurdles to making this work? The problem is that it's very, very hard to keep the qubits in these nice pristine states that allow you to do this. And so people have been working up slowly in the number of qubits that they can do. And, you know, they've been working up from from three to four to five. And they're now getting to the point where they can do manipulations with dozens of qubits. And that gets you to a level, but it doesn't say what these quantum computers might be good for once we get to that point. So let's talk a little bit about that. It's in your story. What domains of science might be winners if we have quantum computing past this threshold? 
Right. So that's pretty much what DOE wants to find out, right? Just because you can solve a problem mm -hmm. that a classical computer can't doesn't mean that you've got something that can do lots of practical things. And in fact, these problems that they're trying to solve for quantum supremacy are pretty artificial, right? And DOE wants to find out what can you do practically in particular to serve the science that DOE already does in fields like chemistry, material science, nuclear physics, and particle physics. It turns out it's not entirely easy to uh, to pick out a problem that can benefit from quantum computing. Um, there are some things that it can't do, which are kind of interesting. For example, if you have something that deals with a massive torrent of data, like from particle physics, uh, atom smashers, billions and billions of collisions, it turns out that quantum computing can't actually help you with that gigantic data stream because each of the events is actually relatively easy to analyze with a regular computer. It also turns out things like fluid flows in things like, uh, say, climate simulations also are not necessarily going to benefit from quantum computing. Let's hear the positives here, Adrian. What, what can sure, we do sure. with quantum computers? The most likely candidates are things, processes that involve quantum mechanics themselves, which kind of makes yeah. sense, right? These are things like in chemistry, apparently a sort of poster boy example for this is uh, in an enzyme called nitrogenase, which will take hydrogen and nitrogen and uh, from them it'll catalyze the formation of ammonia, which is a key to how plants fix nitrogen and uh, which is a key to producing basically fertilizers, mm -hmm. right? And that molecular process, the catalysis is too complicated to model with classical computers because uh, nitrogenase contains hundreds of atoms. But in principle, if you could get a few hundred qubits together, apparently this is, is something that you should be able to do pretty easily. Another one is the sort of quantum nature of neutron star matter, calculating the properties of the densest matter there is. For nuclear physicists, that's a hard thing to do with a classical computer. There are all kinds of subtleties of the quantum mechanics that get in, in the way. But with a quantum computer, the quantum computer would automatically take care of the quantum subtleties because that's how it works. Mm -hmm. And you would be able to calculate from first principles the properties of neutron star matter. So right now, the places that DOE seems to be interested in looking first are those places where quantum mechanics comes in as a part of the science. Right. So the DOE wants to support understanding how you can apply quantum computing to these problems. What is their investment aiming at? They're also looking to help uh, with what is known as co-design. And the idea here is exactly how you build the quantum computer may depend on what the problems are that you want to solve, right? So you would want some give and take between the designers and the users. I mean, for example, depending on exactly what kind of qubit you use, right. you may be limited to having a sort of two-dimensional array of these things. And then you have to think about, okay, how are they connected? Which ones talk to each other? You know, generally speaking, you get more power if you've got more of the qubits connected to their neighbors and their next nearest neighbors and things like that. The thought is that if you could develop a so-called quantum computing test bed, you could actually have some interplay between the users and the designers that might uh, facilitate the design process. And so DOE is starting a, a quantum computing testbed program at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and also at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. Okay. There's a bunch of people competing to kind of reach quantum supremacy first, and they're making these, you know, more and more qubits work together in this stable environment. What happens if someone, say, achieves that level? Is that 
the quantum computer, what then? Is, is this it? Has the new era dawned? The leader right now in this effort appears to be Google. And uh, within the next year, they're hoping that they can demonstrate quantum supremacy using so-called superconducting qubits. And they uh, have a chip with about 50 of them. And they think that that should be enough to solve a particular abstract test problem that they claim ordinary computers cannot. There is some debate there, right? I mean, because the, the folks working on ordinary computers have been spurred on by this and are trying to show that, you know, well, you know, we can press farther, we can press farther. So you'll have to go to more qubits. But roughly speaking, that's where things stay. But to make something that's really practical and can do all of the really weird things that have been advertised for for quantum computing, you know, cracking, you know, an instant, uh, the best internet encryption, uh, security protocols and things like that encryption to do something like that people say is actually going to require a quantum computer with hundreds or thousands of qubits. So 50 is well short of that. And so once quantum supremacy is demonstrated, there's a very long way to go. And people are still going to be trying different types of qubits and different architectures and different approaches. When you talk to researchers, some of them are are anxious about what they're calling the post-supremacy gap. They will get to a demonstration of quantum supremacy, but they will still have this very, very long way to go before they have some practical machine, and that the public, not understanding this, may get disillusioned uh, when they hear that there's a working quantum computer, and five years later, they still, you're never going to have a quantum computer on your desk to begin with, because you don't need to solve <laughs> these types of problems yeah. that, it, that it can solve. I mean, I guess one should never say never, but that's most likely, I mean, it's likely going to be years after uh, quantum supremacy is demonstrated before sort of the real applications of, of this technology come around. That doesn't mean that quantum supremacy is not a big deal, but it's not the end of the road. I was going to ask, it, at this point, it really sounds like you're designing, you know, say your chip to solve one kind of problem. And you have to kind of recreate the chip rather than like program something to run on it. Is that, that's my impression from reading this. That's pretty much it right now. Quantum supremacy will be demonstrated by a chip that's designed to solve a particular problem, and it's not going to be demonstrated by something that can solve any problem you put to it. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's right. And so when we try to make predictions about what fields are really going to benefit for this, you, you, you still have to wait until you have the properly you know, set up program to run on a quantum chip. I, I think that that's correct. Although I, you know, scientifically, for other applications, it may be different. But for the scientific applications, undoubtedly, those that involve quantum mechanics itself will come first. I mean, it, it seems overwhelmingly the case. Okay, Adrian, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, my pleasure, Sarah. Uh, it's always always fun. Adrian Cho is a staff writer for Science. He covers DOE's leap into quantum computing this week in the magazine. You can find links to his article at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or listen to us on the Science Site, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us.